Elijah and Hannah, would you guys stand? We've got a new engaged couple. Wow. You feel like new people? New human beings? Brand new. Great. <laughs> it's the third baptism. Wow. Oh, that's beautiful. Sweet. Um, well, we're so excited for you guys. Um, uh, praying over you and this next season of your life. What a, what a joy, what a beauty um, to get to journey with you guys alongside this. So we're in a series on, in 1 Thessalonians. So we're going to be opening up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse, I think it's 11. Um, and uh, so open up your Bibles to that, and I'll catch up with you in just a second. So there's a question that I'll ask sometimes in, my, um, in, in our house church. And if you're in our house church, you've, you've heard this, or if you've been a part of any small group that I've, been a part, or that I've helped lead, then you've probably heard me ask this question before. Um, but the question is, where have you seen God at work recently? And so I'll ask this at the beginning of uh, a session, and we'll go around and we'll kind of all share where we've seen God at work. And a few weeks ago, I was asking this in our house church, and I began to realize that people were interpreting it differently than the way that I meant it. Uh, they were interpreting, where have you seen God at your job recently, right? As opposed to, like, where have you seen God working in your lives? And so I'd ask the question, and then uh, Caleb Gallegos uh, responded with, like, well, I mean, you know, I'm... I'm working at this wine bar right now, and like, and, and like, he just kind of made something random up on the spot, and I was like, and then everybody else started talking about their actual jobs, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, oh, I mean, like, at work in your lives, like, but that, that mix-up got me thinking about vocation. It got me thinking about jobs. We might agree with the sentiment that God is at work in our lives, but what about actually at? work. Nearly an entire third of your life will be spent at work for most of us. To put that in perspective, we're talking about 90,000 hours over the course of a lifetime. And in a city like ours, plus in a, uh, in, depending on your industry or your occupation, it's most likely more. Work is what we spend most of our lives doing. But for many of us, due to the sacred and secular divide, we find it difficult to connect our work to God's greater purposes in the world. We, we, we feel the disconnect, which is why when I asked the question, where do you see God at work in your lives, and people thought I was talking about vocation, everyone kind of had stooped faces or a look on their face. Like, I, I, I don't know. So here's the reality. For most of us, our best time and energy will most likely go towards working. So what exactly are you giving those 90,000 hours to? What is it that you're hoping to obtain at the end of that? What do you want to show for all of that? God is redeeming the world, and he wants to use your work to do it. A passage that has haunted me recently actually comes out of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. And the writer tells the Hebrews, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. That word lazy can be translated as sluggish or slothful, but one of my favorite translations to the word is simply bored. The writer says, 
we do not want you to become bored. And pulling this together with the rest of the chapter of Hebrews, that chapter 6, it's actually possible for followers of Jesus who have tasted the goodness of the gospel, who have seen the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that have experienced profound community within the context of the church, to actually become bored with the faith. We need a compelling vision of following Jesus that is bigger than Sundays. So here's, here's the big idea, and there's a lot of ways to solve that problem. There's a lot of ways to solve it. But the one that I want to talk about is the idea that God wants to meet you in your work. He longs to meet you in your vocation, in your workplace, where you find yourself on a day-to-day basis. And the question that I want to ask is, how do we find God at work? Because it's one thing to say, like, oh, yeah, he wants to meet me there. But it's an entirely different question to ask, how do we find him there? So Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, starting in verse 9, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So God himself has taught you how to love one another. I I, I love that. I don't need to address this. I mean, it's crazy. Usually, like, our friends, our family, or our relationships teach us how to love. And Paul's like, listen, God has discipled you in love. Like, you, you guys are good at this. So I don't need to talk about it. Yet... We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So keep going at it. Verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. So Paul here is emphasizing the important importance of work as it pertains to the Christian life. He's saying that your work matters. Now, some scholars argue that, like, what Paul is doing is he's refuting this idea that some of the, um, some of the Thessalonican community had stopped working altogether because they thought that Jesus was coming back soon, and so they were just being lazy and kind of relying on patrons and people to like help provide for them. And they're just like sitting back doing nothing. No worries, Jesus is coming back. I don't need to work. And those scholars argue that he's like trying to get at that and say, no, 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 you're missing the point. Like God wants to use your work to prepare you for Jesus's return. Now that, that works great in our, in our like theme and series of present future people in First Thessalonians, but there's really not a lot of evidence for it in the text. Um, you could assume it, it's possible. There's a potential that it could happen, but I I don't know if it's necessarily um, implied or if it's even like seen at all within the text. What more may be happening on a broader spectrum is Paul is comparing and contrasting the difference between the cultural understanding of what work was and our our understanding of work as followers of Jesus. And so that's, that's hidden within this text. It's like in there, he's saying things that they would have assumed that they would have understood. So we're going to walk through verses 11 and 12 to just try to figure out exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying your work is not peripheral. It's integral to the vision of life that Jesus has for you, which is good news because work is where we spend most of our time. Remember, 90,000 hours of your life. <laughs> 
So it's, a, it's great news that work is important to him. So most of us, when we think about work, we tend to view work in three different ways. Work as blessing, work as burden, and then work as Baal or idol. So Baal is just a god in the Old Testament, but I wanted it to be three Bs because I came from a Baptist background, classic me. But what I mean here is idol. So blessing, burden, and Baal. Okay, so let's look at the first one. What do we mean when we think of work as blessing? When we see work as a blessing, it's not a sin, it's not a burden or a curse, but rather work is a part of the beauty of partnering with God. He has blessed us with the opportunity to work. So working becomes a privilege. We love what we do. We love the gift of being creative and making culture or whatever it is. We get to take the raw elements of stuff and turn it into something, shape it into something beautiful. Whatever work looks like for us, we think about the, the, the passage in Genesis 2, 15 um, that says God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is a blessing. It's a privilege. It's an honor. We're getting to like engage in work just the way that God intended us to. But then there's work as burden. We don't really like our jobs. It's simply there to make ends meet, but it's not connected to any real significance in our lives or helping us cultivate a sense of meaning or purpose. In April of 2020, the unemployment rate in the U.S. jumped to a staggering 14.7%, which is the most it's ever been in our nation's history. And ironically, as new job opportunities began to open back up and, you know, things in, with COVID started to open back up, people actually didn't return to jobs as quickly as we expected. So what does that tell us? So the reality is that as we discussed at large back in 2021 is that about 87% of our nation is unhappy with their jobs. We have a deep disillusionment with work and working more or less, depending on whether you think it's a blessing or a burden, isn't creating the results that we're hoping for. So if it's a blessing, we just keep working, but that's not producing what we're hoping for. If we're working less because we think it's a burden, that's also not producing the, the results that we're looking for. But lastly, there's work as idle. Work can be a blessing or a burden to us and all the while become elevated in our lives to something that it was never meant to be, a place where we find ultimate meaning and identity. So Derek Thompson, who's a journalist, wrote, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, others worship their children, but everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. One of the benefits of being an observant Christian, a Muslim, or a Zoroastrian is that these God-fearing worshipers put their faith in an intangible, unfalsifiable force of goodness. But work is tangible, and success is often falsified. To make either the centerpiece of one's life is to place one's esteem in the mercurial hands of the market. To be a workist is to worship a God with firing power. That last line, to be a, a workist is to worship a God that can fire you if you're not doing well enough. Where you, but see, as a follower of Jesus, we worship a God 
who's merciful and gracious. It's almost as if we've turned work into a religion, trying to get it to reward us with the deepest longings of our hearts. So blessing, burden, or idol. And if we want to partner with God in our work, then we must learn to move past these three, all three of them, and into a biblical understanding of work. And I think this is what Paul is trying to get at in our passage. So look back with me at verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So Paul's not saying that you should be passive, submissive. He's not asking you to be a doormat in your marketplace or in your workplace. He's not saying that Christians should remain silent or quiet or physically quiet in public affairs or not speak up for their convictions. This is speaking to an inner quietness, to lead a quiet life, an imperturbable calm, an inner life that is quiet and at peace when the world around us is the opposite. A peace that enters into our workplace knowing that we don't have to win the favor of our coworkers or bosses. A rest that isn't trying to climb the ladder of success simply for the notion of gaining a semblance of control over our lives. A peace that comes with a deep-seated relationship with the God of the universe. And I love that he couples this leading a quiet life with that word ambition. Think about that. The word ambition is a competitive veracity. It's, it, there's there's um, a, a like aggressiveness to ambition. There's this hot pursuit, a trying, a running after. Um, ambition is an Olympic word. It's ferocious. And he combines this word with a quiet life. Now that's interesting. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. See, often we lump ambition with pride, right? We lump it with self-centeredness or arrogance, especially in Christian circles. But what this means in this passage is that the opposite of ambition is not humility. It's slack, laziness, sloth and boredom. See, we try to combine ambition and look at ambitious people and say, man, they must be prideful, arrogant, self-centered. And we do it under this guise of trying to make us feel better when we're just not courageous enough or don't have enough faith to step out and take risks that other people are. See, it makes us feel better about ourselves and then we can call ourselves humble. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. That's false humility. Humility is simply the accurate understanding of ourselves, our strengths and weaknesses in relation to where we are, when we are, and how we are and who we are. So it's, it's understanding who we genuinely are and how we're supposed to navigate the world in light of that. Not with loud, self-centered ambition and not with a quiet, false, passive humility. Paul says that we as Christians should ambitiously enter into our work in a way that pierces through the noise of the culture. Ambition to lead a quiet life. He's saying redirect your ambitions. To what? Well, what results in leading a quiet life? The peace that only comes through connecting our work and our ambitions to God. 
Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord and not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Your work isn't based on your status, your position on the corporate ladder or how much dough you're ringing in. It's based on the value of your work as an offering to the God that you serve, the God that you worship. The way that we redirect our ambitions is making our greatest ambition to glory and worship and honor the God of the universe, even in our work. He's offering us a life that is not caught up in the strife, the turmoil, and the pressures that work will inevitably bring. No matter who you are or what you do, you can do it for the Lord. Next, he says, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not become dependent on anybody. In other words, your work can have a deep sense of vocation and meaning. There can be ownership. He's encouraging them to like work with their hands and to make a contribution to the world. He's saying, like, get to it. It's important to note that the Greek culture loathed manual labor. Like, they hated it. The most important kind of labor was thought labor. And it's ironic because it's the same as us. We think the thought leaders are the most influential, right? The people who have like catchy phrases on Instagram or Twitter are the ones that are actually leading the world. And, and so what Paul is saying here is, listen, get your hands dirty. Get in and work with your hands and do the hard stuff, do the hard work. It's okay for you to do the hard work. There's meaning in that as well. God is involved in that too. It can be easy to feel this disconnect between who we are and what we were made to do and the jobs that we're actually in, right? It can feel like difficult sometimes. For some of us, we're not in jobs that we love. They're disconnected. It's like, it's just paying the bills. And what Paul is getting at here is that he's trying to explain to us that it doesn't matter what work you are doing. Like you can do the labor stuff too, the laborious stuff. You can work with your hands and God is present in that too. He's asking us to re-solidify our vocation. See, oftentimes when we think like, what is my calling? What am I, what am I meant to do? We, we, we lump two different components of it together and think they're the same thing. Calling and assignment. See, this is what like, creates vocation, is the identity of who you are, calling, identity, and the giftings, the, the, the things, the unique gift mix and makeup of who you've uniquely wired and uniquely um, been placed to be by God with the, the natural reality that as a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. You are loved, you are adopted, you are chosen by him, you have been washed by his blood, and you are continually becoming more and more like him. That's an identity that's true of all of us. And then the gifting component of calling is the, is the idea that we are um, all uniquely wired, right? And then, but that's calling, and calling is an intrinsic, and there's other ways you can define it, but I'm just going to leave it there for now. Calling is intrinsic to who we are. It doesn't change. Assignment changes. And see, here's the thing. You can learn how, the trick is to learn how to apply your calling in whatever assignment God places you in. 
learning how to recognize, no, 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 I can work with my hands here. And God is gonna, I am pulling God and his reality into this moment no matter what you are doing. In Genesis 2, verse seven, it says, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and breathed the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This shows us that God has dirt under his fingernails too because he took dust from the ground and formed man out of it. I've had the privilege of working as a barista, working in insurance sales. I had a job as a painter. I've worked in a warehouse and at a music store. And I've worked at multiple churches as an intern and as a pastor. And in every one of these jobs, they've been spaces where God is deeply at work. It doesn't matter what you are doing. God is intimately involved with the everyday, ordinary, mundane stuff of life. He wants to be in the midst of it. So there's the first two components. Redirecting our ambition, solidifying our vocation and the reality that God is here. And lastly, I want us to notice something in verse 12. It says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Why would your life win the respect of the outside world? Because it's making a contribution to it. It's actually changing things. See, as David Bruce Hedgeman says, he says, God cares not only about redeeming souls, but also about restoring his creation. He calls us to be agents not only of his saving grace, but also of his common grace. Our job is not only to build up the church, but also to build a society to the glory of God. As agents of God's common grace, we are called to help sustain and renew his creation, to uphold the created institutions of family and society, to pursue silence or science and scholarship, to create works of art and beauty, and to heal and help those suffering from the results of the fall. Work can actually, our work can actually make a difference in the world. It can serve the world. There's ways for you to serve your coworkers. Maybe it's more tangible for you. Maybe you've worked in nonprofits before and it's like, obviously, this is what I'm doing. But how does like cranking spreadsheets of sales into um, a document, how does that like actually serve the world? Well, you're working with people most likely. How can you learn to serve them? It's not just about us, but our work can be about the betterment of others. So remember, redirecting our ambition to something that gives us a quiet life, peace, a peaceful life. What is that? Recognizing that we are worshiping God and not what the culture is worshiping. So worship, then we're re-solidifying our vocation and the reality that God is present in every aspect of our work. He can be present in our work. So worship, vocation, and then lastly, service. This is our sweet spot those three things for followers of Jesus when it comes to work. So I, I just want to offer you this framework that I learned a while back from a class that I took, and it's been really helpful in helping me understand exactly what um, work in the Christian worldview is supposed to be. And we make it our ambition to lead quiet lives. We work differently than the world and in a way that allows our work to become a portal to worshiping the God of the universe. Then we have vocation. We actually 
take ownership over our work and work with our hands, recognizing that whatever we do, God is present in the midst of it. And then last but not least, we can work and earn the respect of outsiders as we endeavor to serve the world for the renewal of all things, not just the betterment of ourselves, but the betterment of others. Now, we typically experience fragmented versions of this. We grab hold of two out of three that lead to a few modes of work that end up out of balance for us. So first, there's worship and vocation, and that results in careerism. So you may have a direct link to God, and you may be worshiping him and recognize him, and, and you might even like have a sense of call and purpose to your vocation. This is what I'm meant to do. I'm finding joy. But it's simply just careerism if it's not bettering anybody else but just yourself. And that, and that can result in a self-centered, individualistic, selfish aspect of life that ends up um, enabling you to push people away from you than it does to like bring people closer to you. Um, and then there's vocation and service, and this just results in activism. You have a deep calling to your whatever you're doing, and that whatever you're doing is serving the world. And you can, you can recognize how it's benefiting others, but there's no connection to the God of the universe. There's no recognition that what you're doing has um, spiritual impacts, not just physical impacts. You're not like actually connecting it, and that just results in activism. And then last but not least, there's worship and service, and that results in exhaustion. You know that what you're doing is glorifying God. You, you worship him while you're, you're working, and then it's also bettering others. It's serving people, Right? But there's no connection to a sense of purpose and identity and meaning and calling, which those are the things that help you last. They, they're what motivate you. And so you end up just being exhausted at the end of it. So these are fragmented versions. And if we can get all three of these together, if we can embrace all of them, that's where the magic happens. If we can begin to recognize our work as worship begin to recognize the calling and the purpose of our work in the midst of whatever we're doing because God is present with us. And then last but not least, service. If we can recognize that there's an opportunity for us to better our coworkers, our bosses, the world around us, whatever we're doing, um, it will give us greater meaning. So in our culture, we have created this sacred-secular divide, and we delineate it based off of the kind of work that we're doing. So we, we say, like, the religious stuff is the work that doesn't, um, do you want to help me teach? <laughs> so adorable. Eloise has one of those bees, too. They're the best. <laughs> oh, it is Eloise's. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, sacred-secular divide, right? Um, we tend to think um, that what makes something sacred is the action, it's the kind of work that's being done. It's the religious stuff, the praying, the worshiping, the coming to church, the doing your daily devo, um, whatever it may be, but the religious stuff. And then the secular stuff is the non-religious stuff, right? We call it sacred work or, or, or even like going to the mission field, sacred work, but then going to the marketplace, secular work. The work of media, marketing, government, technology, businesses, meetings, they're a part of the secular world. And we create this dichotomy based on religious and non-religious, but that's not anywhere present in the scriptures at all. That dichotomy does not exist. 
What makes something sacred is not the work that's being done, but the posture of the heart in the midst of that work. The scriptures delineate it based on sin and righteousness. Like, because all of you know that you can come to a worship set and be thinking about different things. I can, I can be praying with a bitter heart. But then I can be like having a sales conversation with profound gratitude, glory, and the presence of God entering into that moment. Right? So how do we find God in our work? Simply put, God comes where he's wanted. In James 5, it says, right? What does it say in James 5? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God comes where he's wanted. So do you, do you actually want God in your work or not? Where we expect God to show up can actually shape the places that we see God show up. So here's the invitation. It's to see our work not as peripheral, but as foundational in our endeavors to follow Jesus. It's a foundational environment where God wants to meet you. How would your work look different? How would your workplace look different if you were to saturate it in the presence of God? God comes where he's wanted. So we'll see him there. Would you guys stand with me? He wants to meet you in your work. He wants to meet you in the ordinary aspects of everyday life. And I just want um, to commission you into your workplace. So if you wouldn't mind opening up your hands right in front of you. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to meet you where you are. Actually, worship team, could you guys come up? And, and then I'm going to just pray a prayer of blessing as you go into your work this week. Um, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for what you are doing and how you are ministering to us. God, I pray that you begin to open up people's hearts, that you would soften their hearts, that you would direct their hearts, that you would help people redirect their ambitions, that you would help them solidify their vocation, and that they would enter into a posture of service, that they would see how their work can actually serve those around them. Help us to see our work as a place that you want to work. Let us not be afraid of sharing with our friends the hope that they need. Let us be confident and full of joy to watch you move in and out of uh, our conversations and maybe it isn't a conversation. Maybe it's just the using of our work to glory you. To bring glory to your name. God, I ask that you would allow and enable us to shift our perspectives on what our work is meant to be. In Jesus' name, I send these few out with the confidence that you are there in, in their midst. I pray that they would encounter your presence, that they would see miracles happen within their workplace, 
that they would seek healings, that they'd have prophetic words for their community, um, that you would surprise them at their work with joy and celebration. We love you, Lord. In your holy, heavenly name we pray. Amen.